We are in 1 Peter, 1st chapter, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Good morning, everyone. We are in a study of First Peter. We just started this series last week. Last week, we took a closer look at how Peter described Christians as he described us as exiles, strangers, sojourners on this earth, and how this place of ours that we're kind of drifting through is temporary and our permanent home is in heaven. We read about how Peter's letter was addressed to a very diverse group of people, today known as modern-day Turkey, but back in this time when Peter wrote this, the crossroads between east and west, as the Roman roads cut across Turkey, and that was the only way that in the Roman Empire you can get from Asia to Europe at that time, and so this was this area where these huge continents collided, and so you can imagine how multicultural, multi-ethnic, how diverse this audience was that Peter was writing to. And in verse 2, we read a lot of the richness regarding our relationship with God, namely our salvation, that it's not an accident. God had foreknowledge of our relationship with him. It is not a coincidence. It is a divine appointment that we were washed clean by the blood of Jesus, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, as according to his redemptive plan. So that was last week, and that was two verses. That was awesome. And so, to be saved, right? Salvation. And Peter wanted to make these facts about salvation really clear for every believer of Jesus that, you know, God planned it out. It wasn't some accident. It wasn't just he was tinkering around and said, oh, that works. And it wasn't anything like that. Jesus secured our salvation on the cross through his blood, and the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives sanctifying us and after these declarations of facts regarding salvation peter could do nothing else but worship praise and honor god and that's what brings us to verse three blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ i mean what else could he do now keep in mind who wrote this when stefan was reading this i was just thinking no one writes like this anymore i mean that's beautiful stuff. And then I got to thinking, Peter wrote that. If you do not believe in God, how can a fisherman write this? Seriously. The guy was a fisherman. He wasn't some literary genius. He wasn't some rabbi. This guy's a fisherman. And he penned these words. It is only by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How else can you explain it? And it's this same Peter who wrote this beautiful letter who sank in the water while he was walking on it because he lacked faith 
The same Peter who Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan, because he pulled Jesus aside and rebuked Jesus. And the same Peter who took his sword and he cut off Malchus's ear. And Jesus said, hey, man, put your sword away. It's not ninja time, right? And same Peter denied Jesus three times. And so you see how gracious Jesus is. You see the redemptive heart of Jesus. Because the only way Peter gives praise to Jesus is because he was forgiven by Jesus. And within this phrase of praise, I, I just came up with that, Peter gives us some theology. Now, some of you hear the word theology and you're just like, okay, nap time. No leaning on your friend's shoulders or anything right here. Just don't tune out, please, because it's really important. You check out how Peter prays God. And this is really fascinating to me because he says this, blessed be the God. Do you guys pick up on that? This is really important. Check out how Peter praised and phrased this. Blessed be the God. He did not say, blessed be a God. He said, the God. Right? He said, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very rare for me to meet a true 100% atheist. And if you were going to meet them, you'd figure you'd meet them in the Bay Area, right? but I really have met very few. Most people I meet, most people I share Jesus with are very spiritual people. Very spiritual. And they believe in God or they don't necessarily call Him God, but they'll call Him a higher power or a higher being or a higher intelligence or something. But they believe in a God. And what I have found is that people believe in a God, but there's no curiosity, there's no knowledge or interest in knowing the one true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week I was in a car with a brand new friend that I made. I made this friend and we trusted each other so much that I rode in the car with him. That's a good friendship, right? You ride in the car with somebody. And so I'm riding in the car and we went to Berkeley Bowl West. Very different from Berkeley Bowl. I got to tell you, right? Because um, Berkeley Bowl has like mad hippies. Berkeley Bowl West is cool. Like you, no mad hippies over there. Anyway, so hippies are like, oh, peace, peace. But they're mean, man. <laughs> and so I was in the passenger seat of the car while he was driving. And we're having this conversation. And we're driving down San Pablo toward downtown Oakland, right? And so, you know, that Walgreens right there. And you make a left on Ashby. And we're having this conversation. And he tells me that he believes in a God. And he doesn't believe that there's just one God, one true God. And I'm thinking, he's a new friend. Do I say this? Do I say this? And we're turning left and I'm thinking, God, John 14, 6. Like, do I say it? Do I say, I, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he said. I'm like contemplating, like, oh, Lord, am I going to ruin this friendship? Are we going to get deeper? What's going to go on? And we're turning left and guess what I see? on this huge poster board on a telephone pole. John 14, 6. <laughs> you don't believe me? Go drive there. It was there last Wednesday. And it's right there. And I'm like, praise the Lord. Like, I'm not going to lose a friend. And I got the verse. Like, it's good. It's good stuff. And so I wanted it so bad to say that to him. But, you know, I, I didn't want to Bible thump him. And so we're just turning there, and, and it's right there. And I was like, 
God, you're so good. You're so merciful. The timing is perfect. And there's no way he could miss that because it was the only like clean post. It was white with black lettering. Everything else is all grungy and stuff, like people's hands and all that stuff. And we're turning, I'm just like, bling, a smile on my face. I'm like, Anyway, and we're going, and bam, it's right there. And God is so faithful, and I'm just continuing to pray for my new friend. But this very claim is what got Jesus in a lot of trouble, that claim. It's how he ended up on the cross, dying on the cross. John chapter 5, starting in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You know, there's no eternal benefit for people who believe in a God or a religion. The eternal benefit only comes when that belief is in the God. Look at how explicit Jesus was in pointing out that they believed even though they did not see or lived for their God. He said, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. It wasn't that they didn't believe in a God. They did. Big time. These guys believed in one God. These were monotheists, right? But Jesus pointed out to them that they were wrong in their belief of their God because they didn't believe the one whom was sent, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures... I mean, you know this stuff, which is an awesome thing. You guys know this stuff. But they did so thinking that they'd have eternal life because they knew these scriptures, but these scriptures were pointing to Jesus, but they weren't getting that. Verse 39, it is they that bear witness about me. It is the scriptures that bear witness about Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You search all this stuff, but you still don't get it. Then Jesus asked them this rhetorical question in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, how can people today who are just infatuated with the praises of others and the world around them ever believe in the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ unless they live and enter into God's presence in the name of Jesus Christ? doesn't make sense. You can't do that. You can't believe in God the Father if you don't believe in His Son whom He sent to die for your sins. It's an impossibility. And here's something. You know what? Except for one, all gods do lead to the same place. They do, don't they? All gods, except for one, do lead to the same place. There's only one that can bring you into the presence of God, which is, in essence, heaven. Every other God will lead you away from that, which, in essence, is hell. And it's not what I say. That's John 14, verse 6. That's what the Bible says. And in our pluralistic world, especially here in the Bay Area, very pluralistic, this is an extremely tough pill to swallow. 
This is going to get you into arguments with people. But this is what the Bible says. How else do you explain John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How can you even have a different theology than that? That is a very, very clear verse. Moving on with some more theology. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to camp out on this phrase here for a little bit. According to his great mercy. The definition of mercy is this. Kindness or good will towards the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. Now we're all familiar with meritocracy, right? You do something and you earn something. Like we're all familiar with this sort of a system based on our ability so that if you finish the race first, you get a gold medal. If you finish college, you get a degree. If you work, you get money. So we're all familiar with earning something based on our ability, which is just. And justice is getting what you deserve. But that's not what this is. Peter wrote, according to his great mercy. His mercy has nothing to do with us other than this. We need it. That's the only thing, right? We, we need it. And thank God that he has it. And it's not that he has a little of it. He has great mercy. Great mercy. Now when people say things like this, like my children, I need to correct them. And they say, that's not fair. That's not fair. And so I have four girls, so there's a lot of not fair. but A lot of not fair. And the thing I need to implant to them right away is, life's not fair. You need to know that. Life's never fair. When is it fair? And anything that you and I have is according to His great mercy. The life you live, the senses that you experience, and the air that you breathe, the ability to communicate, the ability to love, is all according to His great mercy. And if you want to talk about fair, you and I were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Him according to His great mercy mercy it's according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead let's look at the next phrase in verse three he has caused us to be born again now this phrase born again it can be confusing and it can be really weird if you're not a christian think about this if you were no christian background i'm born again you're a freak born again <laughs> Born again? You're born already. When are you born again? And so this is confusing even to religious people, right? Because this is what confused Nicodemus. Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. So this guy is extremely religious, extremely knowledgeable about the Scriptures. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This guy knows his stuff. This man came to Jesus by night. He's probably kind of embarrassed or kind of secretive. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I can just imagine Nicodemus right here. What? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Disgusting. Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, Jesus was talking about spiritual birth, not to physically being born again. And it's according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It's not something that we earned. It's not something that we deserve. He gave it to us. Now, why would you need to be born again? Think about this. Have you ever thought about this? Why would you need to be born again? Because you're dead. That's why you need to be born again. You're dead. Why else would you need to be born again? Why do you resuscitate somebody, give them CPR if they're dead? So they can be alive. You wouldn't have to be born again if you were alive. So the gospel isn't just about having a better life, even though that's true. It's not just about experiencing joy in the midst of sadness. It's not just about experiencing peace in the midst of chaos. It's not just about receiving a real purpose in your life in the midst of indifference and ambiguity. It's not just about gaining knowledge and wisdom in the midst of foolishness. It's not just about getting stronger in the midst of weakness, even though all those things are true. In addition to all those things, you can gain all those things by having a relationship with Jesus, but the fact of the matter is, you are spiritually dead. That's why you need to have the new birth. You're spiritually dead without Jesus, and he wants to resuscitate you. He wants to bring you back to life. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, there are some traditions that believe there's an act that can save you. That's something like getting baptized as a baby means you're born again. That's not true. I believe that if you're a baby, you're saved and you die. That's just my belief. And I believe it's biblical. Because David, when he lost his son, when him and Bathsheba had his son, he said he was going to see him again in the kingdom. So I believe that you don't have to get baptized as a baby to get saved. You have it. But as you get older and you start to be able to see that you are in need of a relationship with Jesus, something changes there where you have to decide. That it's not some act like a sacrament, like baptism, which is symbolic of the new birth, but it's not the act of baptism that saves you. It is your faith at some age, whatever that is for you, that your faith within that sacrament saves you. Because it's your faith that begins the spiritual transformation of your soul, not getting wet. Next phrase, to a living hope. The new birth leads us to a living hope. How? Through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus remained dead, then what hope is there to be born again? He's still dead. He is not born again. Same thing for you. If he was dead, you could not be born again. There's no hope for that. So Peter met the risen Christ. They ate together. 
And they hung out together at the beach there right after his death and resurrection. And you remember that that's when he said, like, Peter, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, that time. So how did Peter move from that dejected person who denied Jesus three times that he ever knew Jesus to becoming one of the leaders of the church and writing this letter? How's that possible? It's only Jesus, the living hope. You see, Jesus brings life to those who are dead. He strengthens those who are weak. He brings hope to the hopeless. And last week, we briefly talked about symptoms, right? We talked about symptoms, how we're so focused on treating symptoms rather than root causes. So if you have a cold, we want to treat the sore throat or the sniffly nose or the cough, but we don't want to figure out what's deeper behind that and look at the deeper things. And so people also do this with hope. People tend to look at symptoms of hopelessness as the physical things or as the material things or the mental or medical things. But if that is true, then why are the suicide rates so high in industrialized and developed and first world countries? Have you ever thought about that? They have everything, right? So why is the hopelessness there if they have the education and, and the health care and all the other things that you would think bring hopelessness to people? If they're not suffering in poverty and they have food and all this stuff, then why is that? The World Health Organization provided statistics of the, the top 110 countries with the most suicides per 100,000 people per year. And looking at this list, you can't predict hopelessness by the measure of physical, material things a country possesses. You look at this and you're like, there's no rhyme or reason as to how all this stuff is. The United States is number 33. And you may expect some third world country to be number one. But it's actually a European country. Greenland. And perhaps you'd think prosperous or modern countries would be at the bottom of the list. South Korea is number three. Japan is number eight. Do you need to be born again to a living hope this morning? Because you know the world's not doing it for you. You know your education's not doing it for you. You know the civic things that people do are not doing it for you. You know that that's not happening. Psalm chapter 42, verse 5 why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall praise Him, my salvation. Christians know we didn't earn His mercy. It was a gift from God. So don't ever think you're not good enough to be a Christian. Because it's not something that you earn. It's a gift. All you need to do is to humble yourself, acknowledge your sinfulness, and receive by faith the love of Jesus. The new birth leads to a living hope. The merciful gifts of Jesus, we have more in store. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Not only do we receive life and hope through Jesus, we also receive an inheritance. And again, not something you and I earn. We don't earn inheritances, right? We just inherit them. I'm not going to inherit Jack, but anyway. If you are going to inherit something, it's not because you earned it or deserved it. It's 
you're your kid's kid. Right? So they just give it to you. It's not, you didn't do anything for it. I guess you can lose it though, right? Like you can, but never mind. Again, but it's not something you and I earn. We, we just inherit it. But others of you who do inherit stuff, because I'm not going to inherit anything, I, I just invite you to tithe and give offering. Anyway, with an inheritance, you just simply receive it as a gift because you're the beneficiary. You just get it. And likewise, with Jesus, we receive an inheritance, but our inheritance is imperishable, meaning it's uncorruptible. It's not liable to decay. It lives forever. Undefiled, meaning it's free from that which the nature of the thing is deformed or debased, unstained, unspoiled, uncontaminated. It's pure. Unfading, meaning it's lasting, it's continual. See, time has no bearing on this inheritance, and it's kept in heaven for us. I mean, this is Fort Knox to the max, right? No one's touching this. The inheritance we have isn't like the things we inherit on earth, like riches, but it's Jesus himself. It is his presence, and for us to be like him, receive it by faith, and it's yours. Verse 5, who by God's power and being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All the gifts of God are waiting for you. They're being guarded for you. So the question isn't whether what God has for you is there or it's not there. It's whether you're going to receive them or not. And through faith, you are guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now some of you may be thinking that you can't ever be good enough to be a Christian which is true. Which is true. None of us are ever going to be good enough. Thank God it's not dependent on us. It's His great mercy. It's His graciousness. It's dependent on God. And He opens that window so that you can exercise that faith. And maybe some of you think it's just too hard to remain a Christian. How can this be? Now, if you depend on yourself... Yes, it's impossible. It's extremely hard. But if you are being guarded through faith by God's power, it's not too hard. And that's not to say that you won't experience difficulties, but God will be there with you the whole way. You are already saved from the judgment of sin through Jesus. You are being sanctified through the Holy Spirit, and sin will one day be no more in your life when salvation is revealed in the last time. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Salvation because of God's mercy is a definite cause to rejoice. When you're grieved by various trials, it's hard to rejoice. There's still cause to rejoice as God has saved you, giving you life and hope. And there's a reason for grievous trials. They're not just there. Trials tend to be really great teachers, aren't they? They're really great at teaching you something. And just because you have a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean you won't experience trials. In fact, Jesus said we'd face trials. John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Trials and tribulations go hand in hand with the Christian life. I mean, you will have tribulation, but know that they don't last forever. Sometimes they can last long though, but they don't last forever. And you look at verse 6 again. Though now for a little while, and I can't clearly define what a little while means other than it's not forever. Is a little while 10 years? I don't know. I just know it's not forever. And I know some folks have experienced the same trial for years, decades. So I can't say what a little while is other than it's not forever. And even if your trial lasted your lifetime, the span of your life is really just a blink of the eye in relation to everlasting. So while we know trials will always be with us, we also know that they won't last forever and they're teaching us something. Another thing that trials do is they prove whether or not your faith is real. That's what trials do. You ever want to know if your faith is real? You go through a trial. Verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you go through those tribulations, when you go through those trials, know that it will test the genuineness of your faith. Is your faith real? And if your faith is genuine, if it is real, it will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed to you and is real to you. Now many times people don't want to be tested, and who does? Brutal. Right? Who, who wants to go through those difficult times? And I think it's this. You know when you've prepared for a test and you're not quite sure of the test? You don't want the test. You don't want the test. But if you know your stuff, bring it on. I want my A. Right? I want my 100%. I've prepared for this. It's the same thing here. It's not like you're like, oh, bring it on, bring it on. It's just, you're ready. You're ready for the trial. You're ready for the tribulation. It's like, who wants to sit through like the bar exam? That, that's really fun, right? I don't know how many days it is now, but you got to sit through days and days of testing, even if you're prepared for it. It's not like, yay, I'm, I can't wait. I can't wait to sit for 24 hours to take this test. It's a bear. But there you prove that you know your stuff. And it's the same thing here. You prove that your faith is genuine. It's not to say that when you go through a trial or a tribulation, you rush into praise and honor and glory while experiencing the tribulation. You don't do that, right? You're in the bar exam? Yes! Yeah! You're only like day one. The dude's like, what in the world? I praise this. You're crazy. Take your time. Go through your trial. You know, after it's all done, it's probably going to lead to praise, honor, and glory. Now, some of our tests will take longer than others before we can experience that. And oftentimes it takes time for Jesus to be revealed to us in the midst of our trials. And it is the trial that differentiates between a genuine faith and a false profession of faith. And as we experience these trials, how are we living in the middle of that stuff? Will it turn to glory, honor, and praise? In our second set of worship, Jane has this new song, and I was going to ask her to lead us in a song, you know, that well-known hymn, It Is Well. But I saw on her set list that there's a different rendition of It Is Well, so I didn't ask her for that hymn. 
But I believe that the song that we're going to sing in our second set of worship, this new song, It Is Well, has a tie to the well-known hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. That hymnist that wrote that hymn, his name is Horatio Spafford. Horatio, this is an awesome name. Anyway, Horatio Spafford penned that hymn after several traumatic events in his life. And some of you may know this story already, and some of you might not, and so I'm going to share it with you. In 1870, he lost his only son to scarlet fever. And the following year, he was in financial ruin because he was this successful lawyer and he invested into all these properties in Chicago. And that's when the Great Chicago Fire happened and it burnt all those properties. So he had nothing. So from one year losing his son, the next year losing all of his finances. And then two years after that, he was trying to get some things right with Chicago properties and stuff. And so he sent his family ahead, his wife and his four daughters. He sent them ahead to England. And so he sat back and he was going to catch up with them there later after he kind of settled business there. And while they were going there, their ship collided with another ship. And he lost all four of his daughters. When I was preparing for this sermon, I had tears thinking about that because of my four daughters and how painful that would be and how hurtful that would be. And so when his wife got to Europe, she telegrammed back to him and said, saved alone. Now when we sing that hymn, why is it that all of us can belt that out? When we do that chorus, then sings my, like we can, like we can, we can do it. Why is that? I think it's because we can all relate. We can always go back to a time when life was rough. When that song ministered to us. And every time I sing that song, I always go back to my college years when I went through a two-year depression. Because that song helped me get through that. And I remember that. And how much it meant to me to sing that in chapel. In the trial is when you know your faith is genuine. Spafford's faith was genuine. And the only way he could have wrote that beautiful hymn of praise, honor, and glory was in the midst of tribulations because his faith was genuine. His faith was real. And he knew what he had with God. He knew this world was temporary. And what he was given was for everlasting, and no one could take that away. He would lose his children to disease. He would lose all of his money to fire. He would lose his other children to see. But what he had with God, what God had mercifully given him, salvation, could never be taken away. Never. The thing is, is, do you have that this morning? Because everything else that you have can be burned, can be gone into the sea, can be lost. This can never be taken away. Do you have that this morning? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, even though you and I have not seen Jesus, and we don't see Jesus, there will be a day when we will.
that great unveiling when we will be instantly in his presence. We haven't seen him yet, but by faith we love him, we believe in him, and rejoice with joy, the lover of our souls, who saved us from our sins so we can have a relationship with God who has given us an inheritance that no one can take away. Have you received that free, merciful gift from God this morning? And if you haven't received it yet, receive it now. How many of us are going through life as though life is dreadful, that you don't like it, feeling discontent and dissatisfied and resentful, displeased, unhappy, irritated? Maybe you need a reminder from Peter that our hope is on God and not on the things that bring us down. That just as God has given us hope, we are to bring hope to the hopeless. We're going to pray right now, and I'm going to ask if anyone wants to receive Jesus and to receive that hope and that eternal gift of salvation, that you would just raise your hand. And when you raise your hand, I want to talk with you. I want to pray with you. I want to give you a Bible. I want to answer questions that you may have about this step of faith. So as I pray, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is life and death. You need it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your servant Peter who penned this beautiful letter. I pray, Lord, for your blessing upon these people. I pray, God, specifically for those who do not have a relationship with you, a genuine faith in you, Lord. That it's more than just a false profession of faith, but they know it in their soul that you are residing there. And I pray for those people, Lord, that they would take a step of faith and receive you. And so if that is you this morning, would you please raise your hand? God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to your children. I pray, Lord, for you to continue to work in the transformation of lives in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. See?